Welcome to Psyched, a podcast about psychiatry that covers everything from the foundational to the cutting edge, from the popular to the weird. Thanks for tuning in. Everybody, my name is David Carrion. This is and this is Jesse Gold. And we are sitting with uh, Carol Teminga, uh, the Lewin Ellen McGinley Distinguished Chair and McKinsey Chair in Psychiatry at UT Southwestern. She's the chair of UT Southwestern's Department of Psychiatry and Chief Translational Neuroscience Division in Schizophrenia. Uh, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks a lot for inviting me. I appreciate being here. Um, for those psychiatrists that are not terribly familiar with biological psychiatry, what is, bio- what is biological psychiatry? Um, biological psychiatry, I guess, would be that group of people who are interested in the biology in the brain that underlies psychiatric conditions. I, I, this is a very, very old society that's gone up and down in their attention on different kinds of biology over the years. And now the biologic basis, the biologic understanding of the brain and its normal function has grown so much over the last 25 years. That's a very exciting time in biological psychiatry. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's something that's interesting to me too about like um, biology 50 years ago meant molecules and you know serotonin or dopamine and now, now what is, for somebody who went to residency 20 years ago or 30 years ago, um, what is biological focusing on these days? Yeah, bio- biology is such a general term, and it's like the physiology of internal medicine or something like that. Um, I don't think we have a better word to use right now because we don't understand what the specific biologic, perhaps pathophysiology would be a better word. We don't understand the pathophysiologist for our diseases. But, but as soon as we do, then we'll be able to make that term biology more specific and we'll be able to say that it's self-firing or it's circuit biology or something like that. And so you said that uh, the society's been around for, uh, for a long time. It's a, it's a fairly long um, society. As you might imagine, 50 years ago, the, the biology that they talked about was fairly crude and um, it was a little bit more than a black box but when this started but now there's so much in that black box it's really fabulous. Brain imaging has opened up the world of biology. Um, human postmortem brain analyses has, have opened all of it up. Um, of course genetics and then the trans, uh, transcriptome analyses have opened up what we know about different regions in the brain and their connection to function. It's an exciting time in biology. Yeah, I, I should say so. Yeah, I would assume that would make it an exciting time to be a psychiatrist, too. It is. Um, it, when I started out being a psychiatrist and I would tell people about diseases, psychi- what I call psychiatric diseases, I would really draw the brain in a black box because we knew so little bit of, such a little bit about it. Then we knew a few things about things like dopamine and serotonin and got to know a little bit more about the synapse and what was the structure of the synapse and how cells communicated with each other. And then we thought it was really all about cells and how one cell converted with another. But these days there's a real emphasis on circuits and how different regions of the brain are connected with each other and how they're connected with with each other not only by neuronal connections but by the um, by the characteristics by the um, uh, dynamic characteristics of the connections 
the terminology that they use these days. Um, it, I, I'm going to have to practice offline a little bit on the connection that they that, on the on the, the language that they use. It's very interesting. Very. Interesting. I'd imagine the language for all of this changes pretty rapidly. It does. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The. Um, you know, the brain is the last undiscovered organ in the body. Um, we know a lot about the heart. We know a lot about the pancreas. They're accessible to us. The brain has never been accessible, and it's much more complicated than any other organ. So it's taken a little while for us to get the brain, for, for us to understand how even a normal brain works. And then we don't know the pathophysiology for any of our diseases, so we don't even know how to segment um, psychiatric syndromes into understandable units. Now, that's something that uh, I think I'd like to, uh, to, to talk more about. I mean, because the, the, the average person thinks about something like um, major depressive disorder or schizophrenia as a thing, as an entity, as, as some thing existing in reality, like diabetes exists in reality. Um, what, what's your perspective on uh, psychiatric nosology or, or you know, how, these, how these diagnoses work? Uh, diagnoses work? So I used to think schizophrenia was an entity, too. And I used to call myself a schizophrenia um, scientist. And um, I don't anymore. Um, we did an experiment a few years ago where we took... We decided to study the dimension of psychosis. So we took a number of different diagnoses. And we did deep phenotyping on all the diagnoses. So we took people with schizophrenia, people with schizoaffective disorder, people with psychotic bipolar disorder. If we could have found enough people with um, psychotic depression, we would have taken those two. We didn't find enough. Um, then we did, we had a, we had, this was a study across five sites in the United States. So we had an opportunity to recruit quite a number of people, a thousand, about a thousand probands and about 500 normal people, and we did a deep phenotyping project. So we looked at, at brain-based behavior very carefully. We looked at brain imaging. We looked at um, EEG, brainwave analysis. We looked at eye-tracking analysis. We looked at cognition. Um, we looked at signs and symptoms, of course. Um, and our intent was to find some number of tests that psychiatrists could use when a patient walked in their office. A psychiatric patient walks in a psychiatrist's office and the psychiatrist sits down and talks to them for an hour. You know, they walk into a neurologist's office, the neurologist says, what are your complaints? And they'll talk to him for 10 minutes and send him off for three tests. And then they'll come back two weeks later and they'll get a diagnosis. We kind of wanted a system like that. And we hadn't started out to not, we started out hypothesizing that we would find biomarkers associated with diagnoses, and we didn't find one. We had about 50 or 60 different phenotypes, and we didn't find one that clearly fell in a diagnostic way on any of these different psychotic diagnoses. So we were pretty disappointed, and we spent a little time being quite depressed because it really meant that we didn't know anything. We didn't even know how to take psychotic disorders and and uh, cluster them. So we, um, we finally got over that part of it because we needed to get our grant renewed. So we just simply stripped the diagnoses off all the probands and we put all the probands together into a single group of psychosis people and we took the brain biomarkers. We took the EEG, we took the cognition, we took the brain imaging, and we, you, we didn't take any signs and symptoms. We took, just took the brain measures, and we took them together, and we reclustered the people. 
and we came out with three groups of three totally experimental groups. These aren't we're not we're not up to diagnoses or anything like that. These are just experimental groups. But the experimental groups had very interesting um, biological characteristics, and so we decided to study them more. And the and and now we're in a, into a second phase. These are clusters of individuals, all, all with psychosis. All the diagnoses are spread through all the clusters. So why bother with that? The only reason, we now have to really confirm that this makes sense for selecting treatments or it makes biologic sense so that we would have genes that perhaps genes or epigenetic phenomenon that characterize the groups. So we're now in the process of doing that. Would you say that the f- initial failed experiment kind of forced you to rethink what kind of what you had put on the diagnosis, like have, being able to kind of shake up your thinking into clustering things instead of just assuming that things fell into these nice diagnoses that DSM created, having the failed experiment sort of forced you totally, away from that? Totally, totally. I ne- ne- we never would have thought of it otherwise um, because we didn't start out uh, making the hypothesis that we didn't know anything in terms of how to cluster our patients in a group. Um, if, if, if people have a lesion, so in Alzheimer's disease, p- patients have plaques and tangles, it's at least a place to start. You may not know the complete pathophysiology, but at least you have the lesion. In Parkinson's disease, um, you know, if you have the, the VTA, um, the, the, the dopamine cell degeneration a lot, it's, that, that, it's very simplistic, but at least it's a place to start. We don't have that in, in psychiatry for our psychiatric diagnosis. So, I think that the way that we did it for a long time is just by pure phenomenology, that we looked at people, we looked at their symptoms, we looked at their course of illness, and we assumed that that was a meaningful way to um, divide people up. But it's turned out to not be a good good thing to do. It's a little bit like dropsy in 1910. Dropsy is morbid obesity, excuse me, morbid um, um, edema. And dropsy is really a, a, a group of illnesses that are determined by cardiac, pulmonary, renal disorders. And that's how I kind of think of psychosis. So now it's really back to the drawing board. Now, this is, this is really astonishing. I mean, if, if we think, I mean, there are some people um, that I've talked to who just start out skeptical. There are some people that, uh, that I've talked to that just, you know, never since they were young psychiatrists believed in uh, DSM or the, uh, the diagnostic categories. But it sounds like you're saying you were somebody who really believed at the beginning of your career that schizophrenia was a thing. And then over the course of your research, you changed your mind. That's it. That's it. I don't know that I ever believed that schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder were very different from each other. That seemed like a little wishful thinking. But I certainly understood, I, I, I always believed that schizophrenia was an illness. And now I really, I really think that psychosis is a category like congestive heart failure, and, the, and that will, over the course of the next, I don't know how many years, find individuals. The three groups we found, we've named BSNP biotypes, they were, they're very different from each other and they're very interesting. And I think that if they hadn't, each of these three different groups hadn't been so interesting, from a biologic perspective, we would never have gotten caught on them. One of the, this BSNP biotype one is a group of people that have low, very low cognition, they have very low brain EEG, and they have the highest um, 
a gray matter reduction of, of all of the three groups. The group in the middle, which we called then biotype 2, was a group with only modestly low cognition. And instead of low EEG, they had high EEG. So they had, instead of hyporeactive brains, they had hyperreactive brains, both at rest and in an evoked evoke potential paradigms. And then biotype 3 was the most amazing of all the groups because of all of the biotypes that we used to measure, they were hardly abnormal at all. But their psychosis was just as bad as all the other people's psychosis. So it was, um, it's a group of people who are kind of a negative control with the same clinical presentation. What do you think that actually means? We were wondering. And we were sitting around a table thinking. So this is, this is all of the five PIs and all of the friends and stuff. So we were thinking. Paint this picture. Where, where was this table? Well, we, we, get, we get together, um, we get together uh, once a year. And we get together once a week on the, by telephone and talk about a lot of practical things. But then once a year we get together and sit around in a library. And it was a kind of an old-fashioned, not very updated room where we're sitting on chairs that are falling apart, you know. We have a lot of coffee around the table, and there's a little bit of fruit and bowls in the middle. <laughs> so we're talking about what, it, clearly the people who are the um, very, very low cognition, very low EEG people look like what we had all probably imagined psychosis or schizophrenia was going to look like. We were surprised in the second group by modestly low cognition and very high. We didn't expect people to have very high EEG. It wasn't synchronous EEG, so we didn't imagine that the EEG was productive in some way, that those were people who were smarter, and so they weren't smarter, um, but they had high EEG anyway. Then we were puzzling about what, ha what, what was, uh, happened to this third group, and one of the guys all of a sudden said, I know, those are the potheads. So there was, there was one of the five sites, it just happened to be mine, that had taken an, a, a careful enough uh, marijuana history because one of the people at our sites is interested in marijuana. And this was, in fact, this, the, this, the statistics aren't very strong because um, it was just one of the five different sites, so it was not nearly the 1,000 people. But, in fact, they were... Uh, there was a good, a very high percentage of early cannabis use, and there was a 90% of that third group had at least some adolescent cannabis use, not even early adolescent cannabis use. So now in our second iteration of going back and looking at these things, we have a very careful, um, especially early, early cannabis, early psychosis um, screen. When you look at that and then you see all these people coming and saying like cannabis has no problems and cannabis... Oh boy, I'm, I'm, I really worry. Um, it looks to me, in most of our studies, it looks like um, the worst time for cannabis is somewhere between 9 and 15 years of age. And that still a vulnerable time for cannabis is somewhere up to 20. But if you smoke cannabis after 20, it doesn't look like much bad happens. So it's clearly... Um, a vulnerable window for cannabis. I mean, maybe a vulnerable window, window for other things too. We don't know, but we're studying it. So, with this, uh, I mean, this this transition um, from the uh, DSM to, uh, I, I guess this is this is some people would categorize what you're doing, and maybe explicitly as um, as being under the um, research and domain criteria 
Um, is that is that true? Well, we got started before um, Dr. Insel had suggested the R doc, so we call ourselves pre doc. <laughs> but I think it, 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 the R doc. Um, principles must have been emerging all at the same time. They must have been emerging as, at the same time as we had developed um, measures where we could really distinguish, brain measures where we could distinguish one person's brain activity from another. We now have, we took fibroblasts from at least some of these people and we um, um, transformed them to IPS cells and now we're growing them into what's mature an neurons. Pardon? Uh, what's, what's an IPS cell? It's stem cell. So we took, we took fibroblasts and transformed them to stem cells, and then we took t- stem cells and transformed them to neurons. So now we get, to get a chance to see whether between biotype 1, 2, and 3, we can find some cellular um, fingerprint of, what we're, um, of some kind of pathology. I mean, it, w- it would be very nice to have some kind of pathophysiology for all of this. Mm-hmm. Still, I don't think... I, I, don't, I don't think at all that these three different categories, we're still in the process of figuring out how many categories there ought to be and figuring out, with, these are still hypothetical categories, I should say, say it that way. Um, we don't think that those three categories are even going to be diagnoses. We think that each of those three categories have buried in them perhaps a hundred different diagnoses, mm-hmm. maybe. It would just be a guess without any, based on no knowledge. And, and I guess, what is, the, what is the average practicing psychiatrist to do with this information? I mean, we, we see people every day who have a, you know, they come in and it's a, you know, 34-year-old patient with schizophrenia. What is that? What, what am I supposed to take that as if I'm in the emergency room or if I'm in clinic? Um, what does that mean? So psychiatry doesn't have tools that are specific and selective enough to bother with the kind of data that I just talked about. So what we would like to do with these data is find out what the pathophysiology is and find out what the target for drug development is and then find you new drugs, find psychiatrists new drugs to use in the emergency room so that when somebody walks in and they, the doctor can do more than say you have cancer. I mean, if you walk in, we would like to say you've got this kind of cancer and these are what the cells look like and your cells are responsive to the following medication. So really, it's almost premature to learn about what I'm saying because we can't do anything about it anyway. Well, we could tell, we could tell teenagers never to use marijuana. But that's, that, this is for sure good advice. I know that. Yeah. Um, what we would hope to do one day is to work backwards to pathophysiology and then use pathophysiology to move forward to provide new treatments. To make our treatments a little bit less like a dartboard that you just shoot at depending on side effects. Exactly. Sometimes it's not, it's, it's, most of the time it's much less precise than exactly what you're talking about. I, in the, in, um, I work in the state of Texas and there's, clearly not enough psychiatrists there. And so when psychiatrists see patients, they treat them serially. And one person will give them an antidepressant, one person will give them a mood stabilizer, another person will give them an antipsychotic. And no doctor really takes away anything that other people have had before. So you see these people on... In fact, in this, in this particular study where we had um, probands, we had psychotic probands, we had... A, a, a wide range of diagnoses. So people always say, well, you must have found that, different, that people in different diagnostic categories were treated with different drugs. 
And the sad part about it is that the answer to that question is no. Mm -hmm. We found almost all the patients treated with almost all of the drugs that we have. So how wrong is that? But, but it's, it's unclear how to tell somebody how to do it in a better way. Do you feel like that's because we also don't know how to really measure response? You're exactly right. And response comes not right away. I mean, we work with symptoms where it may take a while for the drug that you give the person to work, but you don't know how long it's going to take and you don't know how long to wait. Most people maybe wait two weeks or something before making a change. Um, the kind of symptoms that psychiatrists look at are symptoms that, first of all, are poorly treated and generally treated by the drugs that we have. So that's, <coughs> that's clear. Um, and then they... We don't know what the relationship is between the background of the illness with the, dr with the drugs that we use. We're pretty lucky to have the drugs that we use. Um, we could have nothing because we don't know pathophysiology. I'm not going to say we don't know anything, but we don't know pathophysiology. Um, the drugs that we have were just accidentally discovered and then very well exploited from their discovery. But, but we need to know a lot more to get more precise drugs. And I think I'm, I'm interested also, uh, I, I think there's, there's almost this feeling in psychiatry sometimes that it's, it's a battle between the, the biological psychiatrists and the people who care something about psychology and that these, you know, people are dismissing each other or there's these two camps and battle lines are drawn. Um, but w would, you, would you say uh, your perspective on this, uh, this, ought there be a battle? No, 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 <laughs> not, not a battle at all. In fact, all behavior is based on brain behavior. So even psychological phenomenon, even though we look at them as psychological phenomenon, are totally based in brain behavior. And I, I'm, not a, I'm not psychologically oriented as a, as, a, as a psychiatrist, but I would think that there's a, there's, a, there's a huge area of looking at the relationship between brain changes and psychoanalysis that could really be looked at. Because psychoanalysis can't be anything other than changes in brain regional plasticity. And they would be very, very easy to study. Every time I interact with my psychoanalyst colleagues, I try to talk them into doing brain imaging and other kinds of tests. When you were in training, did you know that you weren't a uh, like psych psychotherapeutic minded, and you wanted to be more focused on biology, like the whole time? I did. I'm sorry to say, I um, studied Freud when I was a resident. I think all residents really do, and I asked biologically oriented questions of, of Freud to my teacher, and I quickly learned that that was not the proper student <laughs> attitude. This is a long time ago. So I stopped ask, asking questions. But I, I you know, I've, even Freud himself said all of these behaviors are going to be, be explained by, the, by brain activity in the future. So Freud himself, when he was explaining, in, using psychological phenomena to explain to his students, he was um, very biologically oriented himself. And, and I know that maybe even if you're not so much psychotherapeutically minded, you are really early intervention minded when it comes to yes. early psychosis. Yes. What does that look like? Can you explain that a little bit more? Well, this is another kind of phenomenon that I've only c come to realize recently. You know, when you talk about cancer care, early detection is what it's all about. 
um, you don't let the cancer develop and look at where the metastases go and how fast they grow before you decide to treat it. That's what we do in our field. Somebody gets a little bit psychotic and you wait for it to develop a little further. You see if the psychosis is paired with affect changes, whether the affect changes started before or after. Then you let it go a little bit more and see what their social function is, if their social function deteriorates fast, deteriorates slowly. And finally, we do most of our testing for new drugs and a lot of our research we do in people who are 30 to 40 years old and have had their illness for 15 years. And I think that the realization that we really need to get to all of this very early, and we need to get to people who are psychotic early to um, stop their psychosis and particularly stop the psychosocial deterioration early, and then they'll stay better for longer. We're still in the process of testing whether they really stay better for longer. And, I, and we'll have to tweak our treatments so that they help the person, the people stay better for longer, but I have no doubt that we're on the right track. You know, and that's something that also I was, uh, I mean, at some points in my career I've heard lectures about um, schizophrenia that are, that are rather fatalistic. It's this, you know, it's a, it's a biological illness which has a 1% chance and it just, if you happen to have the unlucky genes at birth, then you're just kind of up a creek and so uh, no point in early detection because it's, it is what it is and there's no turning, you know, no changing it. Um, is, that, is, that, is that a true view of So I think that's wrong. I don't think that there would be a lot of psychiatrists who would be so... Uh, fatalistic, who would see it as such a, a single path forward. Um, I, I, I don't think that we can take every person with a diagnosis of psychosis or schizophrenia and turn their illness around and cure them. We can't take everybody with cancer and cure them. We can't take everybody with heart disease and give them even do a transplant and get them cured. Um, but we can do our best in trying to predict which people to do the complex early treatments with. And what is that for, for those who may never have heard of the, the early intervention? What does that what does that involve? And uh, I guess how just very superficially or, or, or uh, overview wise, how could that change somebody's course? Somebody on track to in other worlds would get what we would call schizophrenia. How would that change? So a lot of people. Um uh, these studies started in Europe and most European countries, probably in the 1990s, and there were several um, studies that studied it then, giving intensive, interpersonal, psychosocial, and constant antipsychotic treatment um, to people with early schizophrenia. These studies happened in Europe. Um, there were a couple of, of scientists in the U.S., Lisa Dixon being one of them, who kept an eye on those studies and who was very interested in early treatment. And she was very interested in treating early everything that was all of the um, psychological and medical burdens of people with early psychosis. So she paid attention to drug abuse in early schizophrenia. She paid attention to um, not only just the psychosis, but of course she treated the psychosis too, but she, she, was, she cared about families and family-patient interactions and things like that. She's the one that was an, in, the inspiration for the Ray study, which then got completed around the country, which was a two-year early intervention study where people who with psychosis got, they were watched very carefully over two years. They had very intensive treatments, both psychological treatments and um, the pharmacologic treatments. 
um, and family treatments and CBT and cognitive remediation for two years. And at the end of the two years, the people were better. Um, why they're better is unclear. It could be, it has to be that they were watched very carefully by a group of people who were treating them and therefore they stayed on their medication more. That must be a possibility. And, the, and another possibility, there's just nothing that's worse for psychosis than drug abuse. So that drug abuse was given some attention and people were treated for their drug abuse. Um, whether or not the cognitive remediation turned things around cognitively in the brain is a big question. Okay, well, we are um, coming to the end of our, our time. Um, cool. It's been ask... nice talking with you guys. Me too. We, we, Thank you for making time. We have, a fi- we have a, a, some rapid-fire questions to close it out. Okay. What's your favorite book? Uh-huh. Um, I'm, what, one of my favorite books is Ellen Sachs' book, The Center Cannot Hold. And Ellen Sachs is a lawyer, very accomplished person, brilliant, brilliant person. And she has um, what she always thought was schizophrenia, for her whole life, and she was, um, she had a rather typical schizophrenic course. She was able to um, partition her psychosis off to a part of her life, so she still had, um, she could still go through law school and come out on the top of her class, and she can get her uh, job at uh, University of Southern California. You guys may know her, do you? And and then she. She always said that she was never going to tell anybody she had schizophrenia because she'd never get a good job. So she came to California, got a job in the uh, at the university in the law school at U- USC, and assist- she went from assistant professor to associate professor. She finally got to be full full professor with tenure, and then she wrote her, wrote her book. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome! Is one of the reasons you like it because she is so high functioning and tells a different story of schizophrenia. Um, she talks about her, in one of her books, The the Center Cannot Hold, she talks about her the nature of her symptoms. And it, she's so bright, she can explain it so that you and I can understand it. And she can tell you what her experiences are. And people who are a little less bright can't quite say it very clearly. And their own symptoms interfere with their articulation of it. But she's really brilliant. Um, our next quick question is, what would be your best advice to a psychiatry trainee? Oh, learn about the brain. Oh, without doubt. Absolutely. What is your favorite psychiatry word? Biotype. And uh, last but not least, um, who is your... Uh, favorite hero, either from history or fiction? My favorite hero from from history or from, I mean, it could be a good writer or something like that. Or like a role model or anything that you remember someone looking, like looking up to someone. Spider-Man, I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Or Wonder Woman. (laughs) Wonder Woman. I'd have to think about that for a while, too. I think I maybe have... um, I probably have too many people to, to be able to think of a single person. I'll think oh, about that. You, you can do top five, but also. What else? <laughs> but I would say a better, maybe an easier rephrase of the first question might be, um, what's the most common question you get about psychiatry that you like repeatedly have to answer that you wish you didn't have to answer? Well, some people don't think that psychiatry and psychiatric syndromes have a 
neural basis to them. And a lot of neurologists simply think that as soon as we explain the biology of our illnesses, they'll become neurological illnesses. I just drop my jaw at that. No, these are psychiatric illnesses. They're psychiatric syndromes. We will explain their biology. We're already on our way to explaining them. And so I don't... Um, Actually, what's happening in Texas, and it may be happening in other places too, is that the public is getting quite interested in psychiatric phenomena. They see them in in their own children, in their children's involvement with drug abuse. They see suicides where there shouldn't be suicides, and they're really becoming attuned now. And the public's interest, the public itself, wants to know what the neurobiology of our illnesses are. So we need to get on the stick. Yeah, we're lucky to have people like you fighting the good fight. Thank you. <laughs> and like you, who will do it, you guys who will do it tomorrow. I hope so. Thank you for joining Thank us. Thank you so much. Thank you.